You're listening to the Bloodsucking Feminists, your number one Kiwi Scottish podcast focused on the three Fs, fangs, feminism, and fangirling. I'm Catherine. And I'm Kelly. And you're listening to episode 20, PVC Gone Mad, or Underworld. Before we begin, I'd just like to give credit to the title to Megapope on Twitter, uh, who had a tweet about how the Underworld films were a vehicle for Kate Beckinsale's hotness and how it was PVC gone mad. So thank you, Megapope. So this is episode 20. 20! I can't believe it. We're in episode 20. Hey, we survived 2016. It's only the 19th of December. I think that's a bit too soon to call. I've just jinxed it entirely, haven't I? <laughs> totally ruined it for everyone. Episode 20. I didn't think we'd ever get to 10, let alone 20. Hey, we have dozens of listeners that need to hear our every word. We are in the triple figures for listeners. Ooh, yeah, we've hit the big time. The moderately big time. So last episode, we watched Vet and Helsing with Kate Beckinsale in the love interest role. Now we're watching Underworld with Kate Beckinsale in the protagonist role. This is also interesting because we are also bringing back Michael Sheen from our Twilight episode. He's now playing a werewolf. And Scott Speedman from all the way back in our Moth Diaries episode, who's playing a dude in distress. We basically thought, hey... We didn't really go stupid enough with Van Helsing. Let's pick a movie that's even stupider, but no less fun for it. Because Underworld is really great. Leave your brain at the door watching. The concept of the world is pretty neat with the microbiology aspect and all. Well, this thing is, there's a lot of really interesting aspects of the story. It's incredibly well thought out in terms of its lore. This combination of mythos and science, of biology and um, legend. And it's really clear that that's the aspect that the screenwriter or one of the screenwriters was really keen on working on the most, uh, partially because the man himself, Kevin Gravo, I think that's how it's pronounced, my apologies, but because he's a trained biologist. He has a master's degree in genetic engineering. You know, I like it when people put their degrees to good use. It's, it's good to know someone's doing that. The problem is, I, I I feel that other things are sacrificed in order to accommodate that space. You have this meticulously thought out lore, but in terms of characters and plot, it's a lot more sketchy. Not less fun. I mean, there's enough there's enough guns going off and stretchy, stretchy catsuits here to amuse everyone. But if you want something a little more meaty, uh, no pun intended, it, it's meatier than Van Helsing. It's There's not as much pretty hair. But it's it's considering the stretchy, stretchy cat, it's surprisingly muted in terms of how it kind of positions its heroine as a a character of desire, if that makes sense. Yeah, and we do mean less hair because, I mean, we spend a lot of time talking about Kate Beckinsale's ridiculous hair and how gorgeous it is. She, she's got it cut much shorter and it's kind of sad. Well, she's Kate Beckinsale. She is stunning in anything, so. She's now 9,999 out of 10,000. You know? <laughs> she's still ridiculous, but it's just like, oh, the hair. I say that as a person who has really thin hair, so. <laughs> that sort of thing is, like, unattainable. It's interesting that this is kind of the movie 
that set up Kate Beckinsale as a potential leading action heroine in a model that we don't tend to get a lot of in films. Uh, keep in mind how very few, even to 2016, how very few action movies there are that are intended for a blockbuster audience that are led by a woman who isn't a romantic she's not primarily a romantic figure in terms of love interest she's actually the one propelling the action both story and physically forward how rare even to today that i mean we were talking about this earlier the um the movie passengers has just come out and the most powerful actress in the world jennifer lawrence got 20 million dollars for this role and if those horrendous reviews or anything to go to buy she's really just the woman at the side going be careful honey I mean that's not the worst thing that happens in that movie if those reviews are anything to go by we won't talk about it here but just in terms of how rare it is today even to see that kind of model to the point where when a woman is cast as the lead in a Star Wars movie we have to put up with all these think pieces from sad little misogynistic douchebags talking about how it's just a conspiracy for feminist social justice rather than, hey, maybe it would be cool just to have a woman in the film, because, you know, that makes money. Uh, Timmy Spielberg again, huh? Oh, I don't know, I haven't checked. I'm guessing he hasn't, I'm guessing he said something. But in terms of, like, no. This is an interesting thing, because up until um, Underworld, in this role as Celine and the action heroine, Kate Beckinsale was very firmly a corset queen. Well, she was partly corset queen. She was partly indie. Um, Kate Beckinsale is actually the daughter of a a British TV star called Richard Beckinsale, and he died when she was very young. But he was incredibly prominent on British TV, particularly sitcoms and such. So she came from that background. It's actually the most common way you see actors in Britain. Are they posh or do they come from an acting family? So she did the smaller roles, she did the course and stuff. She was um, Emma from the Jane Austen novel. Very good Emma, actually. Probably my favourite version of the story. She did not much ado about nothing with um, Kenneth Branagh, but she also did films with Quit Stillman and recently got back together with him and did Love and Friendship, which is the best movie of the year. You haven't seen it yet, have you? No. You will, you will love that movie. Every line in it is the kind of line you instantly want to make your Twitter profile. <laughs> It's just so wonderfully witty, <laughs> and she's perfect in it. So it's an interesting contrast. She actually reminds me a little bit of um, Helena Bonham Carter, who comes from a similarly plummy background, established herself as a corset queen, and then got this niche in being Tim Burton's kind of weird doll muse. Whereas for Kate Beckinsale, there's the combination of the stretchy, stretchy catsuit action queen and the schlocky film uh, protagonist wife. Because she's been a wife in an Adam Sandler movie, guys. It seems to me that a woman can only do so many um, historical drama pieces before she she has to do something extremely different. Keep in mind, Kate Beckinsale, who was also in terrible Michael Bay movie Pearl Harbor, she did tell a story recently that she you know, Michael Bay basically said she wasn't pretty enough for the role. Kate motherfucking Beckinsale. <laughs> Michael Bay has weird priorities. No, Michael Bay has dick-led priorities. His dick has weird priorities if he doesn't. <laughs> Unless, you know, she's unattractive because she didn't want to sleep with him. Probably. But she's got an interesting career 
sort of direction that she's taken and as she's gotten older and I mean older she is 43 but by a Hollywood standard she's you know 89 but you do see her taking this step back into the indie roles but she's also going back to doing Underworld the new movie comes out in January she's supposed to be immortal and this and they're still casting her as the 30 or 20 something that she was in the film which is incredible because 19 okay and the, the, the novelization, she's 19. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I think that is a bit pushing it. But, I mean, she can still pull off, like, really, really young. So I'm just really impressed that they haven't recast her. I, know, I mean, I know that she's the, the, you know, the star of the movie and everything. But you think that at some point the traditional Hollywood, ugh, of she got old would empower overpower it because I mean she hit 40. 40. She was recast, wasn't she? Or has she or no, they just just they just got rid of her in the movies, right? Like with the cheaper sequels where they didn't bring her back, they just didn't bring her in as a character, but they would cast someone in that role who wasn't actually her, like this like Shaleen or something like that, you know? Uh but the fact that they're bringing her back, I'm guessing I mean, these films must have at least a decent-sized fan base for them to keep making them and for them to keep making... I mean, they don't make, like, Lord of the Rings money. Lord of the Rings was the highest-grossing film of the year when this came out, The Return of the King was. But, you know, if you make a modestly budgeted action film and get it into the foreign markets, it's always going to do pretty decent. So maybe there's, like, hey, I want to see what Celine is up to. And hey, Kate Beckinsale in the stretchy, stretchy catsuit. I remember to say it, stretchy, stretchy cat suit is always going to be instantaneous marketing, as with anything with a an attractive woman doing attractive woman things. But I'm interested to see how that goes. I mean, the, the film market of 2016, 2017 is very different from what it was 10, 15 years ago. It is more franchise-driven, so I can see why they would want to push out another one of these films, because it's a, you know, a readily recognisable property name. Um... But as we saw with not just Passengers, but the release of Rogue One, the Star Wars story, and Collateral Beauty of all things, the, the attitudes towards film and the way the audiences consume them and the way the audiences talk about them have changed very heavily over the past, especially the past three or four years, where um, where Twitter and social media has played a bigger part of it. So is there going to be more discussion about you know the role of the male gaze and the underworld films and what does it mean? Who are these films marketed to? Are they for men or women? And such? Are we going to see those discussions on Twitter? Or is this just not the kind of film that necessarily attracts a fandom? Because like, I don't think you could have made Underworld, this current version, I think if you tried to make it now, it wouldn't be done the way it is. I think there would be way more kind of lingering shots of Kate Beckinsale's arse. There would be more lingering on Beckinsale in general. And it wouldn't be Kate Beckinsale that would get it. It would be... Sophia Butella, who's wonderful, and I like her a lot in Star Trek Beyond, but she's not, you know, but she's very pretty, and they can bank on her on that terms of physicality. They wouldn't necessarily need a name. They wouldn't need someone who they'd need to pay more than SAG scale. It will be interesting to see how um, Underworld Blood Wars treats um, um, Celine and all the other female characters, because this one is directed by a woman. Yeah, I'm quite excited about that, actually. She was one of the She's one of Roland Emmerich's right-hand women. Her name is Anna Forster. 
So I'm quite excited about that. I like the idea of her just being kind of as bonkers as Roland Emmerich. I don't know if she is. And she's also directed on Outlander. <laughs> so I think she is at least aware of the particular kind of female gaze that was very prominent that is very prominent on that show and could be very prominent here who are the good looking men in underworld blood wars theo james really and the guy from outlander (laughs) as well he's going to be filling in on the michael sheen role by the sounds of it and the main antagonist of the film is a woman it's played by lara pulver who you'll recognize as the um totally not problematic version of irene adler on bbc sherlock get it she's a strong independent woman but she just can't stay away from benzadriel coming my pants Turns out she does need a man. Fucking Stephen Moffat. We should be glad he's never done a vampire movie because seriously, we would just die. Uh, we would have to rip that apart. Um, she was also Claudine on True Blood for the previous vampire goodness. Like, they've got a decent cast considering this movie is clearly not, like, it's it's not a Marvel movie, you know? Well, I've still got a few other Underworld movies to watch, so I won't be... And I've got other things I want to see in theatres anyway. Moana will eventually get here if I can fight off, you know, a good chunk of the New Zealand population who wants to go see Timura Morrison in a film. Oh, Moana's really good. Yeah, it's going to be problematic because they've smushed multiple Polynesian cultures together, but... But it does feature Jermaine Clement as a Tim Curry slash David Bowie singing glam rock crap. Okay, and now I'm in. <laughs> I know Taika Waititi doesn't actually have a writer's credit on the film. He wrote a version of the script, but it's not the one that's credited for, so I'm interested to see what happened there. But I feel like that entire moment of, hey, Jermaine, would you like to be a glam rock Tim Curry, David Bowie crap? I feel like that was all him. Before we go back into a What We Do in the Shadows recap episode, uh, back to Underworld, and back to the first Underworld. Yeah, we should actually explain the plot of the first Underworld. Because it does have a plot. Basically, it's vampires versus werewolves. Like, that's... I mean, there's more to it than that, kind of, but it is basically... There's been this generations-long war between vampires and werewolves, which in this film are called lichens, because that sounds cooler. And Celine, who is the deaf dealer, basically, the hunter of lichens, has spent hundreds of years trying to avenge the deaths of her family, who were killed by lichens. And then Michael Sheen is the head of the Lycans and is trying to find this human who carries the perfect pure bloodline that will allow him to create a hybrid of vampire and Lycan. And that human is Scott Speedman with long, very 2003 friendly hair. Uh, This movie is heavily based around an idea of a scientific um, explanation for vampires and werewolves. There's even references to their own history that they believe are myths that they have their myths are still based around the idea of science about become an immunity to a certain disease and the result but of the resulting mutation even the the myths within the universe are based around science this as we've mentioned before is based on one of the screenwriters having a background in microbiology uh the same screenwriter also sort of came up with the idea based on tensions resulting from interracial relationships, describing it as Romeo and Juliet for vampires and werewolves. This is Kevin Grivert. I, I can't speak French. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not here. Um, who is a black man and appeared throughout the film as the werewolf rays. As the, sorry, the lichen rays. Also, hey, this movie has black people in it. 
like I know that shouldn't sound too shocking or anything, but we've done twenty episodes of the show, and people of color are thin on the ground. You guys, vampirism is a very white genre. Considering one of the first werewolf lichens we see, sorry, werewolves and lichens will be used interchangeably throughout this episode because fuck you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll get you. <laughs> The first lichens that we see in this film are, well, one's a white, white guy, and well, there's a couple of white guys, and there is Ray, who's Ray's, who is a very big black man, as the actor himself is. This, again, this this is the guy who wrote the uh, story and with the microbiology. So, And when he showed up and started turning into a werewolf lichen, I was like, and here we go with the bestial black man tropes. Is he going to be the first one to... Oh, look! He didn't die. He wasn't the first one to die. He still isn't dead. This is already exceeding my really low expectations when I saw anything happen in this film. So, I mean, don't get us wrong, it is still an incredibly white movie. Like, the the sort of default vampire mode is the sort of half-warrior, half-fop who is incredibly pale and has really actually everyone in this movie has really white teeth i'm guessing that's because of the dentures for the roles but still it's like hey you're now a vampire slash lichen here is your leather jacket here's your instructional guide and here's your teeth whitening kit (laughs) vampire dentists make a lot of money i want to see that film so we get race who is a big fighter guy but he's also shown to be the second in command he seems to have some of the Technology, and then on the vampire side, the other major black character is basically leader of a military group and an advanced scientist who creates military weapons. He's like Q, who actually goes out and fights and is awesome at it. He's a, he's the vampire ver- vampire death dealer version of a Renaissance man. Well, that's what's interesting is that there is this sort of divide in the vampire coven between. The, the kind of warriors and the more political strategists, the ones who do the, the delegations. And that is seen as kind of a hit against uh, Craven, the current head of the Vampire Coven, who ends up being the bad guy because his name's Craven, for God's sake, guys. Where, you know, Celine kind of sneers at him that, oh, well, he's not a warrior, he doesn't understand. And, I mean, she's ultimately proven right on that. He is a double-crossing dick. But... Wouldn't being a good delegate be a really good thing if you were leading a vampire coven? Like, you can't just shoot your problems away, Celine. Sometimes you have to take off the stretchy, stretchy cat suit and put on this skimpy, skimpy dress. There's a moment as well where um, Erica, another character with a K in her name, where there shouldn't be a K, uh, she's played by Sophia Miles, is kind of the other only woman in the film, brings out this dress that she's supposed to wear to meet with the the American coven who are coming to help with the sort of changeover of the vampire elders. And there's this kind of implication that she has eschewed that particular kind of femininity in her life in favour of this more masculine-driven physical warrior lifestyle, although she does still do that while wearing the stretchy, stretchy catsuit. Yeah, Craven has a lot of issues that make his leadership a bad one besides him just being a diplomat and not a fighter. I mean, there is literally a moment where he is distracted by breasts. Yeah, it's, it is almost comical. It's a very odd moment. He's like, get out of my way, I need to go do something. And then um, Erica just takes her top off and he's like, okay. 
sounds like you really are thinking with the wrong brain throughout this entire film. That just confirms it. Well, that interesting kind of gender divide, and it is made quite notable in the film, but it's made more notable with the fact that there are only these two women. And when you have really only that one woman in the role who's doing anything of active agency participating in the narrative, you end up kind of with this, this gender exceptionalism, which is really a problem that Hollywood has in particular. I mean, look at almost every Marvel movie where it's like, look, there's a woman there. What more do you people want? And I've seen some of these criticisms for Rogue One, which I haven't seen yet, but this idea that, well, yeah, it's really great to have that kind of diverse racial cast, but, like, if you only have the one woman, and she's the, you know, the that exceptional woman, what do we have to contrast her against? Where are the other women in the story? That is, in and of itself, a major problem. It's not entirely tokenism, it tries to treat itself as more, like, enlightened tokenism. Yeah, we've, we've done better than the Smurfette. Yeah, it's not quite the Smurfette principle because she's really not like she's not a distaff counterpart. She's not like the ma- the female version of Craven or any of the other vampires. Um, she is distinctly her own in terms of there's no one else in the film like her. I don't know if it makes her necessarily that distinct, but it is a problem. But um, I know that some of the later films there are more women in them, and the main, as we mentioned, the main antagonist of the upcoming film will be a woman as well. But when the only conversation that the women seem to have is like, hey, you should wear this dress, and, and she's too busy researching badass vampire stuff, it's... You you notice stuff like that. You can't help but notice stuff like that. Especially if you're, you know, one of those evil social justice warriors who wants women to be seen as people. Oh, shock horror. Also, there is the problem that Erica is the... Basically... Is basically the side piece of Craven who is going to be dumped when Celine finally realizes what is good for her and settles down with Craven. Even though Celine is like, no, no, thank you. Why don't you take Erica? No. The whole relationship between Craven and er- Craven and Celine was kind of confusing to me. Like, are they supposed to be like a political pairing? Like he's the regent vampire. He's sort of the one that is in charge while the um, elder Victor is dormant. But is Selena supposed to be his his regent in turn? Like, I, I felt like that bit was poorly developed. Because like, it's really clear that he wants to fuck her. But she, interestingly enough, well, she it seems to have absolutely no interest in re- relationships or romance or any of that until Scott Speedman comes along and we're supposed to believe that these two are attracted to each other based on conjecture. As uh, Victor says, um, Craven wants what he can't have. But that's such a weak character moment. I know. He's that douche who thinks every no is a chance to make a yes. I mean, I kind of wish we had seen more of the the obvious kind of gender roles at play there in terms of... You know, it's another story where the woman is the most capable person in the room, but all the men dismiss her. <laughs> Repeatedly. It's pretty blatant. I mean, he dismisses her because obviously he has a stake in the, the problem. Ha ha, stake. Um, you know, he is in cahoots with Lucian. And as much as he says, no, he's alive and we should send someone out there to find out what's going on. He's like, no, you're being silly. Let's not. Like The fact that no one else in the room kind of called him on how blatant he was w- with that was... I mean, that, that, was a, that was a lazy storytelling technique to me. That's the thing is, it, there's lots of that in the story 
which is a shame because, as we mentioned, this the vampire and lichen folklore and uh, biological uh, detailing is really good. But then it's just like, shit, we need a story. And we need guns. <laughs> and we need the most bland colour palette on the cinematography. We need people who can shoot just as well as stormtroopers. <laughs> That's true. The, aesthetically, I think we need to point out that this movie is about two steps away from being Matrix fan fiction. It's the vampire AU of Matrix. Yes. It doesn't quite do the bullet time and the slow-mo, but it does do, you know, all of the leather jackets. There's so many leather jackets in this film, guys, and they're so impractical for fighting. Those could get caught in doors, they could get caught in cars, you could trip over them. It's still a bill all over again. <laughs> but also, uh, this movie is clearly shot in Budapest. Uh, <laughs> it's cheaper to shoot in Hungary, you guys. It did give it a nice look, but... But that's thing, it's everything is shadows and rainstorms. The colour palette seldom strays between grey and navy. It's it's sort of gothic inspired, like there are lots of sharp pointed rooftops and archways. Um, but obviously you have that kind of intrusion of the modern life, not just because of all the leather jackets, but you know, the big fight at the beginning takes place on what is, I, I imagine, the Budapest version of the subway. Uh, and there are cars and stuff, but there are so many moments where people are walking on streets or getting into fights and there are no one else around. Like the first time we see Celine, she jumps from a rooftop, lands on the ground and casually keeps walking. There's no one around to watch her, even though as we have seen her looking down at the ground, it's supposed to be a packed street. Like, you really want some tourists to just start shouting in Hungarian, like, look at what happened there, you guys. This film really does run on rule of cool. You know, how do we make this look even more badass? Oh, it's very much of the school that the darker it is, the cooler it is. I call this Zack Snyderism, which is weird, because Zack Snyder wasn't even working by this point. Yeah, that's why there's no slow-mo. I'm actually surprised. I'm actually surprised by how Lester is. This seems like something they would have done a lot of. I guess they didn't want to be too matrixy with the stylized slow mos and things. Yeah, I mean, it becomes more heightened senses than whatever the heck was a Matrix. True. I mean, don't get me wrong. Len Wiseman is not a good director. He has not directed good films, you guys. He's very much the kind. He's like a work. He's a workman-like director, you know. And even for these moments of kind of like glimpses, and the glimpses of sort of personality and and uh, franchise-defining moments that we get in here, are so clearly other than the mythology are so clearly aesthetics that have been lifted from elsewhere. The Matrix is all over this thing, like as I said, to almost plagiarizing levels. But the thing as well is the vampires themselves. Like when we go to the vampire, like the mansion where all the vampires live, because they have their own house. It is this. It is. So gloriously drenched in cliché, but it doesn't seem aware of the fact that it's drenched in cliché. Like, I was reading, uh, oh Christ, I, I recently read uh, Prince Lestat and the Realms of Atlantis, which is the new Lestat novel by Anne Rice. Oh fucking Christ, that book. Uh, you can read our review on bibliodays.com. But one of the things I've always liked about Lestat, and it is in this book as well, is how delighted he is by what kind of a cliché he is. He's like, yeah, I'll wear long velvet coats with ruffles and I'll hang around my gothic mansion listening to Vivaldi and just generally being what everyone imagines vampires to be. What of it? I love it. And I kind of, you know, I think that's just so wonderfully tacky. 
But here we get that kind of tacky that's, you know, half masquerade ball, half the orgy scene from Eyes Wide Shut. I think it's interesting you mentioned the word masquerade and then previously everything being lifted from somewhere else because um, Underworld was uh, subject to a lawsuit by White Wolf Incorporated and Nancy Collins claiming it was too similar to, amongst other things, Vampire the Masquerade and Werewolf the Apocalypse, which is the World of Darkness setting. I could see that throughout the film. I've only played Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines and done some reading of the um, books of the gaming books, I haven't found a group that will tabletop with me. Sad face. And it's very, very World of Darkness-y. Vampires and guns. Pew, 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 pew. If you haven't played Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines, it's generally on sale, very often on Steam. Good game. Has its problems. Oh boy, does it have its problems, both in a problematic storytelling and gender sense. Like, you can literally solve a problem as a woman by sleeping with it. And just the game itself needs some patches, quite a few patches. But it's a good game. It is very, like, that imagery is so... Like, you can see that there's a guy taking notes while he's watching other people's films. It doesn't necessarily need to be... I mean, plenty of um, vampire stories, including ones that we've covered, have stuck quite rigidly to that specific formula and the expectations of the genre. It's just, it's such a, it gla- it's glaring here because it is in such contrast to how unique the, the mythos of the film is and how in- intricately thought out it is. So I, I, wish, I wish there would be, have been a moment where they'd kind of talked about that. It's an interesting cake with standard frosting. There's a lot of really good stuff in the base, but the surface everything is pretty standard. It's not a lot to build on, especially since the vampires themselves, the mythology behind them is so very fascinating, but the aesthetics and the elements of vampirism that we see presented to us are pretty pretty standard. You know, the film is almost entirely shot at night, so we don't have to worry about daylight, although there are UV bullets that can kill them. So obviously daylight is a problem. They need to drink blood. Uh, they have pretty quick healing powers. They have the fangs and perfect white teeth. Perfect straight white teeth. Everyone has the exact same teeth. Like literally, they look like the same set. There's an interesting moment where Celine seems to indicate that they have developed, or at least own a company that has developed, artificial plasma and blood. It's such an aside as well. <laughs> Which is amazing, considering that's one of the major concepts and premise in True Blood, the Southern Vampire Mystery Books by Charlene Harris. And this came out a few years before. Yeah, that's not an especially unique angle either, but I just love how kind of dismissed it is. Like, she just sort of casually mentions, yeah, it's going to make us a lot of money. And uh, Michael, this Speedman character, who is a trauma surgeon himself, like, he, you, can see, you clearly see that he's like, this is going to change the world, you guys. And she's just kind of like, can you stay here and be quiet for God's sake? So there are elements like that that are... I wish that there had been more of, certainly. The one interesting element I did like in terms of the aesthetics of the vampires is the first time that we meet Victor, who's played by Bill Nye. He is one of the free vampire elders. The basic hierarchy they have in place, there are free vampire elders. There's Amelia, there's Marcus, and there's Victor. Both of those names are spelt with Ks, by the way, because it's that kind of vampire movie. Marcus and Victor are resting, dormant in their... It's coffins, I guess. Basically, they are alive, but they are in... They call it a tomb. Yeah, they are alive, but they are in... Basically, they're in comas, which have turned them into um, barely living corpses. 
rotting, um, putrid in colour, very grotesque looking. Amelia is out, but she, it's her time to go back in and then they're going to wake up Marcus and they do this every hundred years or so. Every few hundred years, I think it is actually. 100 years on, 200 years off. And uh, Victor is woken up early by Celine because she needs his guidance and something. So when we see him, uh, he is basically hooked up like a turkey being juiced. There are pumps all across his back putting blood into him. And over the course of this process, we do see that he generally begins to look more and more human. He looks more like Bill Nye. But when you actually see him as this kind of corpse, and the way that his body kind of squill squishes when he moves like the the sound designer is pretty gross i just like when he reaches to pull out the one of the lines connecting blood to him you hear the pop but you also hear like the wetness of his body moving as it's like gaining back skin and muscle and such yeah the movie also uses the the csi inside camera which shows muscle being revitalized hearts beating faster breaking of bones or in the resetting of bones things like that both inside victor as he regenerates and michael as he turns into a a lichen and it's a very violent process that one and you get to see all the all the ribs breaking from the inside yeah that's one moment where the slightly dodgy cgi does ruin the moment a little bit which is interesting is for such a low budget movie that most of the lichen work here is makeup and pretty good makeup actually as well it's very much in the tradition of the you know the rick baker american werewolf in london mold but after so many films where you just see like either the werewolf in van helsing for instance is pretty shoddy especially it was shoddy in 2004 it's you know even shoddier now so it's interesting you see this how much this one holds up and if i remember correctly the later films are more cgi heavy which i think is to their detriment yeah so to give you an idea of the budget here um the budget for underworld which was 2003 release uh was 22 million van helsing a 2004 release was 160 million and you wouldn't know it because as we mentioned in the previous episode that film looks cheap Honestly, it's relatively pretty cost fit. As we mentioned earlier, there's a reason that they keep making these. It's because they're pretty cheap to make. You just shoot it in Budapest for that. Uh, and they make their money. I think that the, and just for those who are interested, as this film came out in 2003, there were the 10 highest grossing films of 2003. One of them made over a billion dollars. That was Lord of the Rings The Return of the King. But six of the movies on that list are franchises or sequels. Two of them are Disney properties. Actually, well, one of those is also a Disney property. The other one, not included, is a Disney property. And then there are two that are original, which were, I think you might be surprised, but it's the two you know, highest grossing films of 2003 that were not franchise roles. One was Bruce Almighty, and the other was The Last Samurai of Tom Cruise. Yeah, seriously, Bruce Almighty made $484 million. Keep in mind, this is 2003. This was when, you know, and the other one was Last Samurai. Keep in mind, this was 2003. Both Jim Carrey and Tom Cruise were, like, bankable stars. This was when the concept of a bankable star was a thing. We don't really have that this much now. It's more about the franchise. But... And they weren't tainted by Scientology and anti-vaccines. Or giving your girlfriend sexually transmitted diseases, yes. So we see that in the other two of the other films that were the highest grossing in 2013 with the Matrix sequels. So not only is not only a franchise is beginning to become a thing, but the entire way that we 
make action movies is changing. Remember, after The Matrix, everyone made films like The Matrix. Everyone shot action like The Matrix. Everyone did that, wanted that kind of bullet time effect. It showed them how computers could do things. Yes. And then a few years later, Transformers comes out and you've also got, you know, one of the highest grossing films, 2003, is Bad Boys 2, which is a Michael Bay movie. And you, a couple of years later, you see, how, you see how Michael Bay completely changed the landscape. Like, Michael Bay is awful, but he has compl- irrevocably changed the way that action movies are made and the way that they look. Everyone tries to kind of copy Michael Bay. Bayhem. Bayhem. Basically, there's a wonderful Every Frame of Painting episode on what Bayhem actually is and how you can see it everywhere. But then cut to a few years later, when Iron Man happens and then the Avengers makes over a billion dollars, everyone now wants to make Marvel films. So you see the way that smaller movies like Underworld get made, you see reflected in how these films, the bigger films, are doing. Follow the money. Never make anything original. It's Hollywood's mantra right there. That's what's so interesting about the Underworld films, is that they are completely unoriginal concepts that are cloaked in original thinking. Which I think we've seen a lot of that with episodes that we've done. I mean, look at the Dracula 2000 episode. You have this really fascinating central concept and it's been drowned out essentially by cut out the smart stuff. People are stupid. We just need to make what we made before. Add more new metal. So much new metal in this, you guys. It is the early 2000s, so... And it doesn't end until Queen of the Freaking Damned, which I'm sure we'll do one of these days. Another thing worth mentioning is what's the, the, in terms of those big high-grossing movies is what uh, studios are distributing them now. Who wants? Who are these people that want the franchises? Every studio needs a franchise now because if you look at the highest-grossing films of this year, which will has is obviously the year's not over yet, and we've just got a new Star Trek, a Star Wars movie out, so it's not complete. Five of the highest-grossing movies, the ten highest-grossing movies of 2016, are Disney movies. Three are Warner Brothers. One is Universal, one is 20th Century Fox. The domination of these four or five studios is a contrast even from... Well, actually, it's not really that much of a contrast from 2003, the year of Underworld, where, you know, Warner Brothers have four films in the top ten, Disney have two... Universal, Columbia have one, and New Line have the top one because it's it's you know Lord of the Rings. So Underworld is made by Lakeshore and distributed by Screen Gems. Screen Gems is a distribution company that did well distributed Resident Evil, a lot of horror films. They distributed where was it? Uh, Mortal Instruments, City of Bones. But also worth mentioning. One of the distributors of the rest of the films in the franchise is Sony. Sony are having a very tough time right now. Looks like they're set to continue having a tougher time because of passengers. If any of those projected numbers are anything to go by. Um, that may be out of date by the time this episode comes out. Stick with us. They, it's, it's a safe investment for them to want to keep making movies like this. And for them to keep up with a particular kind of franchise demand. The safety of a franchise. Because they don't really have a lot of those at Sony. So, I think it's important to talk about the, that the way that this works in film, because we often have these arguments of why don't they make anything original anymore, and why is this happening, and why aren't they making films for people like us? They're not doing it because they're scared, you guys, <laughs> and because they're following the money. 
if, if you know that something is going to make money, of course you make that. You make those first. Anything that you get left over, you can then use to put into the more risky. That's why you wonder why in publishing, they why do they keep pushing this book or this this thing? Because that book is making the money that they can use to pay for the smaller ones. And really, again, they know what will make money, and that's their first goal. Although it is also worth noting, the Underworld franchise makes money, but it doesn't make the kind of money that studios want or need their films to make now. So what's going to be really interesting with the Underworld movie, the new one coming out, Blood Wars, which is being dumped in January, which is usually a bad sign. It's not really a prime moment. It's a $42 million budget, which is pretty, which is really considered a mid-budget now, even though that's twice the budget of the first film. Is that going to be a sound investment? You need your film to make back at least two and a half times its budget in order to break even because of marketing costs and such. The previous one from 2012 had a budget of 70 million. Rise of the Lycans, which is the one without Kate Beckinsale, is the one that focuses on Sonia, uh, who is shown only in the first in the underworld as someone who dies, had a budget of 35 million, and Underworld Evolution had 45. Well, they tend to be about you know 30 to 70 and make double, triple. So they're not they're not losses. They're not fantastically bringing in the dough, but they're not epic losses either. They obviously think that it's worth giving them another shot. They don't make them every year or two like some franchises are going. You know, they have to have one film every year in their mega franchise, if not multiple. See Marvel. The last Underworld movie was 2012. But it'll be interesting to see if there's a hunger for it. Do audiences want another Underworld movie, especially with that kind of four-year gap? Is there even a hunger for the vampire genre in general? There, there must be on some level. I don't think vampires ever really die out, although they certainly increase and decrease in prominence as the public appetite demands. They're a standard. Sometimes they're more popular than others. So that'll be interesting, but I think before we end up turning into a, you know deadline Hollywood here, I think we should go back to talking about certain elements of the movie. Like women. <laughs> Let's talk about our semi-naked human hybrid Scott Speedman. Because All right. he's a thing in this movie. He's a thing in this movie. What about the men, Catherine? You just don't do enough about the men. What about the men? We think of them naked. <laughs> I mean, he's almost more of a cipher than Selena's. Like, Selena at least gets to be the instigator of most of the action, although in one moment she still has to be saved from you know, peril by Michael. She has to be dragged out of the car by him. But I, I, can I just say I'm really thankful there wasn't a scene where he had to like rip off her stretchy, stretchy catsuit. I was dreading that. No, it was interesting that it was a case of her own arrogance that, you know, she's like, I'll be fine. No, no, she was not fine, which is something you tend to see more given to the male figure, you know. I, I'm okay. This is just a light. It's just a scratch. It's just a flesh wound. But he's basically, I mean, he's almost a MacGuffin. You know, he is the thing that everyone is hunting for, but doesn't really play much of a role in his own story. He does get chained up and kind of stripped a lot, which is, which is nice. He's generally in the woman role that you normally see. Yeah, he's basically in that woman role that a lot of other stories have a woman in. You know, the one who needs rescuing, the special princess, etc. The chosen one who doesn't really get to do anything. He is still the kind of the chosen one in that role. Although, I will admit, 
I was a little disappointed in that. Not so much that for the you know the chosen one story. It's dull, but you know he's such a MacGuffin in the story. It's almost self-aware. But when we finally get to see the vampire lichen hybrid, and I was thinking, yeah, this is going to be really cool. And he's like, no, he's just kind of been painted black. He's still wearing his trousers throughout it as well, which is really glaring. Like he didn't even get to rip them off. And he's got this rib thing. When he's been bitten and he's kind of melding and transforming, he looks more animalistic, and I think it looked much more interesting, but I, I don't know, does he sell more action figures as, like, black-painted, hot shirtless guy? Because the design of the werewolves themselves is very classical. Like, they're proper old-school werewolves. Maybe they just ran out of budget. Possibly. <laughs> we used all our money on bullets! Uh, I did appreciate that when he did turn into the, the hybrid thing and started kicking butt, it didn't become him finally coming into his powers and defeating the enemy that the heroine couldn't. You know, there's a fight sequence, but in the end it comes down to Celine actually killing Victor herself. He does. Um, Michael doesn't get to steal the kill. In an almost comedic fashion. I did, I did appreciate that as well. It's amazing how a small thing like that can be such a positive thing because we don't actually get that. We get the woman who supports the chosen one who then goes off and does the thing. In this case, he doesn't do the thing because that wasn't the thing he was supposed to do. They would have taken the story away from the woman to give to the man, as we discussed in Van Helsing. And also, Kate Beckinsale doesn't have to do a silly accent. (laughs) And there's less emphasis on her boobs. Yeah, I mean, she's still wearing a corset, but it's it's not a a, a breast push-upper. All things considered, like, I don't want to say it's conservative, but like we've had to watch a lot of films where women are essentially wearing lingerie and it's strong, independent women when it's really fighting fucktoy. So I, I still kind of appreciate it. It's like, it's like I said, we grade on a real scale here, guys. The camera does still have a bit of a male gaze. It's like there are a few bits where they fit her in to show her in on the screen to show more of her body than our regular blocking would do similar to some sequences with black widow in the avengers movie where she's not fitting the screen the same way all the men do to allow for showing off the curve of hips as well as the rest of her body but it's not like in van helsing where it was where the camera was pretty much eye fucking her there's moments in van helsing where the camera is basically positioned between her legs like gazing upwards or looking right down her dress. Yeah, we don't really get that here, which is good. She doesn't wear much that you could get in between looking down her dress. Even the stuff that doesn't have all the corset and is just sort of a halter neck type thing still isn't really showy. It's Her clothing is solid. She does wear heels, but they're solid leather heels, not, you know, fancy stilettos. It's still kind of impractical, but on the scale of impracticality, it's much less than Van Helsing. A lot of the the camera work seems to be more... It can't help but acknowledge that she has a very good figure in a stretchy, stretchy catsuit. But it's not, you know, swirling around behind her, trailing up her legs, things like that. It's trying to give an emphasis to the coolness. She's cool and hot, but mostly cool. And also she's wearing this long leather jacket, which covers most of it. Her uniform does seem to be slightly more a made-to-fit version of what you see the men going around in. It is stretchy, stretchy catsuit, and the men aren't quite there, but it's a variant of rather than a whole new outfit. Yeah, I think that is, from what I remember, the sequels kind of go more for the, you know who likes movies? Teenage boys. 
You know what teenage boys like? Chasey, chasey, catsuits. Pretty much. Oh, this is also 2003. This is, um, you know, this is still a lads mag era. So where, you know, that kind of female sexuality is, is positioned in that kind of way. Because I still don't feel like, I feel like a lot of Hollywood don't understand if you're making a vampire movie, your audience is mostly going to be women. <laughs> Hint. If you're going to make a vampire movie, we are your audience, not men. Come on, guys, fucking pander to us. Even Erica, with her literally distracting Craven with the sexy, is filmed in a less obviously naked manner, it seems, than other films. I mean, it's really obviously she's naked from the waist up, but there's no really unsubtle side boob shots. There's no slow motion showering, you know? Like, the bit when she takes off her top, you can see her from the back. Anything you see is just the natural result of women having cur- of a woman having curves. Not like the camera is perfectly on an angle to give complete and utter side boob action. Yeah, it's also um, interesting to note that in terms of, like, male or female gaze, there's not really that much of it in this film. Like, we kind of get it with Scott Speedman. Although I feel it is slightly ruined by the fact that he still we- keeps wearing those terrible trousers during all of it. So look, he's the most powerful creature that has ever lived, and he's wearing cargos. So it just—it it was more glaring to me than like whenever Bruce Banner changes. There was a lot more no gaze with the, uh, regards to Victor and his shirtlessness than there was with the male gaze or the female gaze of anything else, wasn't it? Huge emphasis on his gross shirtlessness. That's really all we can hope to ask for, isn't it? What gross male shirtlessness? We've not really got standards anymore. But I did appreciate, like, the, the sh- I, I, li- I liked it, you know, no no, no Bechdel test at all. <laughs> no Bechdel Wallace, I should say. It gets to the two women with names who talk to each other bit, which is better than a lot of films, but worse than what it could do. I assume, given Blood Wars will have female villain, there should be passing of the Bechdel Wallace test pretty easily, unless it all comes back to Michael again. I think there's one thing that was really striking to me about the film, and I totally forgotten it until I rewatched it. Um, vampires and werewolves in this universe can get pregnant. Well, the. The ones who have the bits that enable pregnancy. Yes. But I, I find that interesting because we've covered a number of you know vampire stories, notably Twilight, obviously, where the vampires and werewolves' inability to have children is a major character development or it's something that passes for character development when really it's just kind of gross and sexist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm still kind of pissed off about what happened to Leanne. I don't even like the books. I mean, there is a history of vampire-human hybrids uh, and vampire hybrids in mythology and this, of course, crosses over to books. Part of the whole concept of Vampire Academy goes back to the Dampier, which is the human-vampire hybrid with the ability to fight and hunt down vampires. But a lot of media properties, books, films, etc. go with the vampire as dead person, therefore pregnancy and general reproduction, reproductive abilities are not a function of those bodies. But since we've got a vampire film that is heavily based in science and literally talks about vampires and DNA mutations and reproduction, having that as a concept, especially with part of the backstory being about a vampire werewolf pregnancy and the general oh no that's going to be bad reaction to it marks it out as quite different and that's really fascinating 
That's the origin of the war. Lycans were supposed to be subservient to the vampires, literally working as bodyguards and things like that. A lycan and a, and a vampire fell in love. Um, she got knocked up. Her father freaked at the idea that his bloodline and his daughter was tainted. Decided the best option was to publicly execute the daughter and then apparently to fail to kill the father of the baby. So we get, you know, the whole story is being driven by a fridging of a woman. Yeah. You couldn't fridge Michael Sheen, could you? So, as we mentioned before, there are three vampire rulers. They take a 100-year reign, then they sleep for 200, and so on. Current ruler, Amelia, is returning to finish her 100 years, and Marcus can rise up and take her place. Victor and Marcus are older men. One is played by Bill Nye, the other guy looks like he's wandered off from a Lord of the Rings film. Big bushy beard and all that. Meanwhile, Amelia is played by a supermodel. Because, of course, you know, you've got to have all your lady vampires as young and gorgeous and super slim. Wouldn't it have been interesting if uh, we had three vampire ruler, old, older vampire rulers and it was Bill Nye, that other guy, and Helen Mirren? Oh, God, yes, I would follow Helen Mirren into battle. Let's do this. She, you could still have that super glamorous and looking really damn good thing with Helen Mirren, but... It would emphasize the age, which is what you're emphasizing when you cast an older actor for a vampire. Literally, they call them the vampire elders, and one of them was played by a supermodel who I think is younger than Hepic Sale. You can't have an old woman on screen, especially not in a vampire film. But it's not just that the women are young. I mean, it's not just that the women in this film are young. Kate Beckinsale's Celine is only supposed to be 19. Like, they're young, young. But also, Amelia is killed without a word. She has, like, no lines. She and her retinue are attacked. She's They're violently slaughtered. There's a focus on Amelia, and that's it. Not a word. And we really don't get to see the gravity of the situation. Like, we really don't see this as, uh, as the major event that it is. Seriously, at the end of this film, they've lost two out of three vampire elders. And one of them is still unconscious. Sort of. Dun, 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 sequel hook. And he's also the one with the, the bloodline that they wanted. And now he's got lichen blood in him. There is a fabulously creepy Eastern European uh, lichen scientist doctor in this film. Like, I, I would have watched more of his film. I think he was fascinating. <laughs> Just like fucking around with everyone. Uh, Underworld is a pretty surface film. Like, a lot of it is taken up with action. Bang, 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 bang. We suck as much as Stormtroopers type of shootings. We, we spent all our budget on bullets and bullet effects. That's why the werewolf looks so, the werewolf vampire hybrid looks so stupid. <laughs> so I think we're pretty much done with this. This is something that I think we'd want to come back and watch a few of the sequels and see how the thing is done. Maybe in a year, if we are still doing this, go straight on to Blood Wars, which is the one directed by a woman. I will be interested to see how the series has evolved, if it has. I will be interested to see what it is that the studio wants from this, what it is that audiences want from this. As we've mentioned before, you know, what role will films like this play in a, a Hollywood where everyone wants a franchise? And particularly where we're actually beginning to see a concerted effort to get that kind of old school horror monster styling off back off the ground again as we as you may know they are doing another mummy movie with tom cruise which looks terrible 
Yeah, but I just need everyone to know that the trailer is now out and it looks terrible. You're a fan of our show, I assume you've probably seen the trailer. When I watched the trailer for The Mummy, I was reminded for the plane sequence in Dracula 2000, except military style as opposed to... Right? The plane thing sort of made sense because we described it as a modern take on the Demeter. I don't know if that's what they were actually going for, but I assume since they actually showed the Demeter in the beginning of that film that they knew what they were doing with that. This is just, you know, the legend of the mummy sinking the Titanic type thing, except let's do it with military bros and in the air because awesome. I'm sorry, but the only sexy mummy is Rami Malek. Yep, I'm I'm cool with that. (laughs) But it is, like, I feel like we could have a whole other episode just dedicated to what the hell Universal are doing trying to revive their monster movie series. But, like, I think it would just be me and you and, like, thudding noises as our heads hit desks. We have many opinions, you guys. This was a fun movie to watch. I didn't have to put... I mean, I put my my thinking brain on because I was watching it for a thinking thing. Uh, It's definitely something, you know... I'd sit down and watch, eat some popcorn. We're good. It's guns, it's fighting, there's Kate Beckinsale, there's a female protagonist, which is, again, low bar to clear, guys. Maybe less new metal would be good. This is a standard type of thing that you could make more of. I mentioned the similarities between the vampire masquerade setting. I would love another vampire masquerade video game especially with a full city rather than whatever the hell was going on in Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines. Seriously, female vampires doing vampire things and fighting and everything. It's a pretty standard concept, especially with a science background, science background adding flavor. This is something that you could do a lot more with, um, especially if you had more female characters and characters of color. This was based on the idea of interracial tensions. Had there been more characters of color, this could have been more interesting. I mean, it's did a lot better than most other things that we've seen, but low bar. Low bar, guys. Yeah, I mean, this film passes a pretty low bar, so I feel like we don't necessarily need to elevate the bar, but it would be nice that you, now you have a, an established franchise to at least play around with that a little bit more. By the looks of the casting, the new Underworld movie is not going to do that, but if anyone is wanting to follow in that mould, people who aren't straight white guys have money. I hear. Build a dedicated audience to some of those guys. These movies are clearing the bar, but they should be going to break the record, not just get enough points to get in the game. It's not enough that you don't knock the bar over as you try and clear it. You you want to go and break the record. You need to go for the record. And this is advice we could give to many people, including Marvel and Star Wars. A short episode this month, which I'm sure you are glad for as well, Thanks to Underworld for being a team player and not giving us way too much to rant about. be interesting if we come back to you, especially with Blood Wars coming out early next month. If you do like Underworld, go see it. Support a female director, a first-time female director of film. She's done TV, but film. Please support her. Don't let them think it flops because she's a woman, because you know they will think it. We hope you have very happy holidays, whether or not you celebrate them, enjoy whatever days you get off. Well, next month, next year, woo! We can't wait for 2016 to end. We will be doing The Silver Kiss by Annette Curtis Klaus. If you're not familiar with it, it was a young adult book published in 1990. 
So it is a contemporary with the original Vampire Diaries books and one of the very first vampire fiction books in young adult in general. It even predates things like The Last Vampire by Christopher Pike, L.G. Smith's Nightworld series, and of course, everything else. It's about a girl whose mother is dying of cancer and then she meets a vampire. So it's a story about grief and loss and mortality. Also, Hugh Dancy Connection Bonus. Annette Curtis Klaus also wrote Blood and Chocolate, which was a film with Hugh Dancy. Woo! Do you have anything you'd like to say for our last episode of 2016? Beyond Fuck You 2016? Don't let the door hit your arse on the way out. We don't want arse prints over our door 2016. Get out. This year has sucked, but thank you to everyone who's listened to our show. We do seriously appreciate you. Thank you to everyone who has visited bibliodays.com. Thank you to everyone who hasn't sent us sexist hate mail. The shout out to those who have. Thank you for upping your numbers. This year hasn't been totally irredeemable. I mean, we've talked to wonderful people. We've had a great time doing this show. And it was really nice if you'll allow us to use the terrible joke, but it was good for us to get something to sink our teeth into. I think this this you know little dog and pony show has benefited both of us a lot. So thank you for listening. Thank you for recommending. Continue to tell all of your friends because we would like our numbers to go up. Um, I I will not beg, but I mean if you want me to beg, I will. You know I'm okay. I'm easy with that. But we hope you stick around with us in 2017. We have some things planned for next year. Uh, we won't say what they are in case we cock it up. If you have any uh, requests for us, any books you'd like to recommend us just in general, any Dracula films you want us to watch or Dracula books you want us to read, we'll try and do reviews outside of um, the Bloodsucking Feminists because books and reviews, that's kind of what we should be trying to do. So, yes, thank you very much for listening to us. We hope you have an excellent rest of 2016. Uh, we say this on the day before the electors vote in the US. So things are probably going to get even worse in the next few days. Enjoy your holidays or your not holidays. Yeah, drink, eat good food. I do recommend Pavlova. Enjoy the fact that 2016 is now over. So again, we'll see you next month, next year, for The Silver Kiss by Annette Curtis-Klaus. And until then... Don't let the vampires bite, unless that's your thing. I mean, it's ours. <laughs>